Welcome, everyone. Second hour, Discovering God and our series, which is Identity Crisis, Who Does God Say That I Really Am? And this is our last teaching session on this topic. And we're going to pick up on page 31. And let me remind you of some things that are coming up. This Wednesday, we resume our midweek program. I say resume because we didn't meet last Wednesday because the day before Thanksgiving. And then Friday, this Friday, ladies, is the annual ladies' Christmas social. And as Pastor Larry has been saying, now it is crunch time. And if you have not registered, you need to do that right away. Men, this Saturday, as Pastor Rich mentioned in our announcements, is uh, men's breakfast, uh, the day after the ladies have had their uh, Christmas social. And for that then, for the ladies' Christmas social, we need some help uh, setting up, guys, as soon as we're done here, setting up tables and chairs. So if you'd be willing to stick around for a few minutes to do that, and when a bunch of us stick around, then that can get done uh, pretty quickly. Two weeks from today is our Adult Christmas Fellowship. That's on the 12th. You don't need to register for that. You just need to come, but uh, mark that, December the 12th, and it's for adults. There's no child care for that, but we always have a good time with it. Now, I said we can always get those tables and chairs set up if we have a bunch of people stick around to help us do that. And having said that, I need to inform you that Kim and I are going to be leaving immediately after we are done with this hour. In fact, I might finish, you know, five or ten minutes early to get in my car and leave. And the reason is we are scheduled to be at a concert at three o'clock in Cleveland. And the weather has not cooperated. And there's a weather advisory, I think, even, uh, starting at noon, heading that way. So we're going to Cleveland. Why are, you going, why are we going to the mistake on the lake, as it has been called? Because uh, there's a piano guy that we like, uh, Jim Brickman, if anybody knows who that is. He's going to be there. And it was Kim's birthday a few weeks ago, but I was still involved in this project that I told you all I've been doing at that time. So we couldn't celebrate her birthday then. We're celebrating her birthday now. We're going to, we're going to Cleveland for that. But we got to get on the road right away. So no offense, I'm going to finish here. I'm going to walk out, get in my car, and we'll, we'll take off, okay? Uh, which means I also can't, guys, hang around to help with the tables and chairs. I really regret that, but I know you all will, I know you all will do a great job, job with it. Next week, uh, I would like to do a question and answer time to conclude, to really conclude this, this series. Uh, I say I would like to do that, but, you know, question and answer times only work if people have questions. So we've done that a few times, and it's worked out okay. Uh, But, you know, sometimes, and especially with things like this, which are trying to help people deal with their own internal view of themselves and all of that, then people can be embarrassed to ask their questions. So feel free to say I'm asking for a friend, and we'll we'll take you on that. Uh, But... Uh, there are a lot of topics that come up in a session like the, in a series like this. So uh, we'll do that. I'll have a backup plan in case nobody has any questions, but plan that for next week. If you've got questions related to what we've done over the last several weeks here, then let's uh, try to answer those. And I think your questions, I'm sure, will be a benefit to others as well. But we're going to conclude with pages 31 and 32 of the notes Let me start it this way. Where you find your identity is where you locate your value. Wherever you find your identity, that is where you're going to locate your value, your personal worth. So if you find your identity in Christ, 
then you're going to find your value, your worth in, in Christ. So what is your identity in Christ? I quickly will rehearse that for you. We looked at several weeks ago many aspects of, of that, but it includes uh, the image of God, the fact that you are a creature and God's highest creature made in His image, made to reflect Him back to Him, to reflect His character back to Him in the way you think and talk and act, made to represent Him, in fact, as His uh, vice-regent on, in His world. In fact, one day we will rule with Christ because we were made to do that in his, in his future kingdom. So you are made in the image of God. I mean, just thinking about that and teasing out the implications of that could keep you busy for a good while and uh, make you, it should make you very thankful for a good while. You're made in the image of God. You're fearfully and wonderfully made, according to Psalm 139. So you are a unique identity. You are made, yes, in God's image, but you are a particular version of God's image with all of what makes you who you are in your personality, your wiring. And you should explore that and be thankful for that. Now, as a fallen human being, that's also part of who you are. So your good stuff can easily become your bad stuff. The talents you have can easily, if taken too far and used in a fallen way, can then be, can be used in, in a sinful way. For example, someone who is able to communicate well, that is a gift, but if you're able to communicate well, you can also, as a fallen being, use that to your own advantage and to the disadvantage of other people. And every gift is like that. Every gift that you have, every good thing that God has given you, your fallenness can use in a sinful, sinful way. But if you find your identity in Christ, it includes that you're made in the image of God, that you're fearfully and uniquely and wonderfully made. So think about that and thank God for that and accentuate those good things. <coughs> if you find your identity in Christ, it means you are justified, as we saw several weeks ago, which means that I have been declared righteous by God, the holy judge, even though I'm not righteous. And I've been declared righteous based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So I have before God, in God's sight, the righteousness of Christ. Well, you ponder that. Think about how great that is. Think about how wonderful it is that no matter how much you mess things up, that you're still righteous before God because He sees you through the righteousness of, of Christ. You're adopted into God's family. You are God's child. And God never disinherits His children. God does not disinherit His children. In fact, the Bible says you're a co-heir with Christ. So you will be all of this stuff that is related to Jesus Christ, you will be all of those things as long as Jesus is. So how long will that be? The Bible uses this phrase over and over that you have union with Christ, that you're united with Christ. So you have these things that I've talked about, this justification, this adoption, all of these things by virtue of this overarching truth that you're united with Christ. 
And all of these will be true of you for as long as you're united with Christ. As long as Christ has them, then you will have them. As long as Christ has perfect righteousness, you'll have perfect righteousness. As long as Christ is God's, the Father's child, you will be. As long as the Father has no wrath toward the Son, He's going to have no wrath toward you. His wrath has been satisfied in Jesus. So you just think about all that, man. That I am that I am made in the image of God, that I am wired uniquely by God, that I am righteous before God because I have Christ's righteousness, that I'm adopted into His family and He does not disinherit His children. I'm a co-heir with Christ, that His wrath has been completely satisfied in Christ, and so I don't have to worry about God getting ticked off at me and then consigning me to some miserable life just because He's because of his wrath is being poured out on me, it was poured out on Jesus. Now, he loves you enough to discipline you. That's a different thing. But that's not his wrath. That's like, in fact, Hebrews 12 likens that to a parent and a child and correcting them, disciplining them because you, because you love them. All right, so if you find your identity in Christ, then you're going to locate your value there. That's where you need to hang out. That's where your mental energies need to be regularly in the things that I've talked about here. Some of you wrote me this week and asked for the list of 34 questions, or excuse me, 34 identifiers, and so I emailed those to you. If some of you would like those, uh, email me this week, and I'll send them to you as well. But they are things like this for you to ponder. Take one or two of those every day of the month and do that. But what if your identity is not in Christ? Because there's only two options. You find your identity in Christ or you don't. It's either in Christ or it's in something inferior. It's in someone or something inferior. It's in performance. Your identity is found in your performance. Your identity is found in your popularity. It's found in your pleasure, that is, not necessarily your own pleasure, but your identity is found in pleasing others, giving pleasure to others. And so as long as I'm pleasing other people... And they are esteeming me because I do these things that please them, then I have worth, I have value. So you look to those for whom you perform. If you're into if your identity is in performance, you're going to look to those for whom you perform for your value. If your identity is in your popularity, you're going to look to those from whom you want that popularity for your value. If you find your identity in pleasing others, then you're going to find your value, your worth in those you want to please. All of that for your validation. So think about how those things, and the list could go on, but think about how all those things now can put other people in a position to control you. Your well-being is now controlled by whether or not you perform to the expectations of other people. Your well-being is now going to depend on, it's going to be controlled on whether or not you're popular with other people. Your well-being is going to be controlled based upon whether or not you are pleasing other people. And you're going to be dancing to the tune of other people for your whole life if you don't get a a handle on this. 
So how do you get away from that? Well, again, you, you, you find your identity, you locate your identity in the right place, in Christ. So therefore, you find your value, your worth there. But how do you do that? Or for today's lesson on page 31, we want to talk about how I do that so that I can help somebody else. You see, in order for you to win on the horizontal level, you have to first win vertically. You can't win in your relationships with other people until you first won in your relationship with God. You have to win vertically before you win horizontally. And so that's what we looked at last week, that you first have got to engage in internal soul care. Top of page 31, you see, says external soul care. But you can't do the external soul care until you've done the internal. And that's because you can't give what you don't have. And so many of us are dancing to somebody else's tune we found our identity in something or someone other than Christ that we haven't won vertically, and so we can't be of much help to people horizontally. So if you're somebody, you know, here's the irony, you're somebody who says, you know, I just, find, I just love to please people, I just love to serve people, I just love to help people. But you find yourself just, you know, com- continually needing that approval of pleasing other people. So you're somebody who... who who says that, that that's what I, I need to do. But the irony of it is that you're not, pleasing, you're not pleasing God first. You're saying that I find my identity in pleasing other, other people, yeah, but you're, you're skipping to the horizontal before you deal with the, deal with the vertical. Further, that truth that you can't win horizontally until you have vertically That truth is not only true of you, it's true of the jerk in your life. Remember, for the last few weeks, I've been talking about, you know, we can all have this kind of thorn relationship where you have somebody who just tries you and tests you and controls you on a regular basis. Well, remember that that person's problem just like yours, is first vertical. So if you go at that person trying to fix them this way rather than first this way, then you're doing the opposite of what God requires. You can't do, top of page 31, external soul care for your spouse or anybody else you're in relationship with. If you seek to try to address the horizontal stuff before the the vertical. So, let me ask you a question. Can you be angry? Are you allowed to be angry at the fact that this person in your life has not gotten it together vertically? Are you allowed to be angry that they don't have it together with God? Just think about that for a minute. Are you allowed to be mad at them because they don't have it together with God. I mean, to the extent that you have it together with God, and none of us would say we've got it all together, but to the extent that you do, 
to the extent that you have been cultivating your vertical relationship, your relationship with God, to the extent that you've been doing that, why is that the case? What caused that to happen? The Bible's answer would be the grace of God, wouldn't it? That if it were not for the grace of God, you would be like the person you're really ticked at. So if you, if you buy the idea that to win horizontally, I first got to win vertically, but the truth is I wouldn't have it together vertically, even partially, if it were not for the grace of God, then that will cause you to assuage your anger a bit. Because you'll understand that truly, but for the grace of God, so go I. You think about how angry you get at other people. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a sense in which that easily morphs into, why can't you be spiritual like me? Now, nobody would say it that way, but that's what's behind it. So can you be angry about that? No, it's the grace of God. You can be sad. You can be amazed at the stuff a person is willing to do to mess up their life and yours. You can be befuddled. You can be confused. You can be all kinds of things. But you can't be angry in any sort of superior kind of way. Why can't you get it together like I have spiritually? You're going to have to, you're going to, have to cooperate with God in what God does, what God did with you, and you want to be a participant in what God is going to do in the life of that other person. So you've got to get that right. You've got to get the vertical right. You've got to do internal care before you do external care. Now look at the chart at the top of page 31. The left side says, if you're going to do soul care for your spouse, then you are going to have to put a gospel top of the page there where you can't read, but a gospel interpretation on what's happening upon them and upon their actions and your circumstances. And you're going to, the bottom of that, that second bottom branch that goes out from soul care for your spouse, you're going to cooperate with God in restoring your husband or your coworker or whoever it is. And all of the things that go out to the right all flow from that. I can't, and I can't do any of this until I've first done the, the internal. So in the text there below the, the chart, to serve as a helper to her husband, she must view her husband through the gospel while looking to cooperate with God. We'll say in the next paragraph that your goal is to help and not hinder. You can't make this person be what they need to be. You'll never be able to do that. Don't go into it thinking you can't. Don't go into it thinking that you can change them. If you go into it thinking you can change them, you will then be in this lifetime project to try to change them. <laughs> and they're going to get anno more annoyed at you the more you try to change them. And they're going to harden in there. And then you, now you've got hardening of the categories. <laughs> in this relationship, and this person is going to rebel against that, and here we go, and you've got married couples that for decades have been in this cycle. And she's been trying to change him, or he's been trying to change her, or both. You can't change them, but you can cooperate with the change God can effect in their life, and you do that 
by not hindering. You want to help rather than hinder. And it's very easy for you to, to hinder because you react in the flesh, the sin nature. You deal with it on the horizontal before you deal with it vertically. And then rather than making things better, you actually make things worse. Middle of page 31. When he struggles to love his wife as Christ, she must remember the spiritual conflict context of the Christian life. The indwelling sin nature rebels against God's authority and his enemies tempt him to doubt God's goodness. He struggles more about his relationship with God than with his wife. Her actions can help or hinder, but she's not capable or responsible for him to change. Her call is to plant, to water, and to tend. Now, that says that the indwelling sin nature of, in this case, the husband, rebels against God's authority, and his enemies tempt him to doubt God's goodness. God's authority, God's goodness. So you are in a relationship of whatever type, marriage relationship in the illustration used here, but whatever. And you're in a relationship, and you've got someone who's a, who's a miserable soul, and they're making you miserable. So why are they miserable? What's their problem? Their ultimate problem is what? Vertical. Their problem is first with God before it's with you. The reason they're miserable is because, go back to this, they rebel against God's authority. Now how? Practically, like what does that look like? When we say God's authority, we mean that God is authorized. That's where we get to He's authorized to do whatever he believes is best. That's what we mean. God's power is his ability to do whatever he chooses. God's authority is his right to do whatever he chooses. He's authorized. He has the right. So just stop and ask yourself, do you believe that? Do you believe God's got the right? I mean, you know, he's got, a lot of people say he's got the power. I mean, you know, we're here. We see the creation. I know I'm a creature. I know I'm not God. I know God could crush me. If he, he's got the power. He's got the ability. But is it morally right? Is it fair? Is God really authorized? Does he have the authority? And I ask you, does he do that? And, you know, we all sit there and go, you know, yeah, yeah. What? That's the right answer, isn't it? Fill that out on the test at church. But the truth is, in your life, in my life, practically speaking, we don't believe that a lot of times. And how do you know you don't believe God has the right? When you react sinfully to whatever he's chosen to do. And that's what this is saying this miserable person in your life has done. They have not accepted God's authority. They have gone to the John Mellencamp school of life. In the words of that great theologian, John Mellencamp, I fight authority. Authority always wins. And see, that's natural in our sin nature to fight authority. And John Mellencamp's like celebrating it. 
I fight authority, authority always wins, but that doesn't keep me from fighting it. I'll keep fighting it. And that's what sinful humanity is doing in their, relation, their vertical relationship with God. By nature, that's what people do. You don't have the right to tell me what to do. You do not have the right, God, to structure my life this way. You do not have the authority to have these things come into my life. This illness, this job issue, this problem with my child, with my spouse, whatever. God, you don't have the authority. You don't have the right. Now, sometimes when I've counseled people, not a lot because this is scary, but sometimes I've said, so that's what you believe? Go ahead. Just say it directly. Say it to God. Go ahead. Just tell him. And almost nobody will do that. And I'm glad because I don't want to get the lightning Right? But really, you're not willing to say it, but you're willing to think it, and you're, allow, and you're willing to, I'm willing to, we're willing to allow our hearts to be guided by it. You don't have the right. And you know you're being guided by that when you sin in reaction to what he authoritatively, he has the right to bring into, allow into your life. So that's why it's said here, the indwelling sin nature rebels against God's authority. God doesn't have the right, therefore I'm discontent. What that looks like is discontentment in its various forms. You show me a discontented person, I will show you a person who doesn't believe God has the right. But then there's a second thing. His enemies tempt him to doubt God's goodness. So, okay, you know, you got the right. All right, right, fine, I'll concede that. You got the right. You're the authority. But you're not a good authority. You're a dictator, but you're not a benevolent dictator. Okay, you're God. You make the rules. You're sovereign, but you're not good. Because some people will come, they will resign themselves to, okay, through grit, Gritted teeth, okay, God can do this. Fine. But that doesn't mean he's good. And that doesn't result in discontent. That results in anger. If you put the two together, you've got a real combination. You don't have the right and you're not good. I'm discontented and I'm angry. Both. You can be one or the other. But either or both are based on the exact same thing, which is this, unbelief. You don't believe who God really is. Christian people don't believe fully who God really is. People who attend church regularly, read the Bible, went to Sunday school their whole life, when they encounter something in their life that is contrary to what they want, now unbelief rears its head. And it rears its head in one or both of these forms and others. But the bottom line on all of it is what do you believe about God? Is God sovereign and is God good? In our Master Plan for Life class, we divide the attributes of God into two categories, 
his greatness and his goodness for this very reason. He's great, meaning he has all authority, he has all power, he has all knowledge. But he's, thanks be to God, he's also good. And friend, if you deny either one of those, if you doubt either one of those, it is going to affect your life such that you're discontent, such that you're angry, or you're both. And then you're in relationships with other people, and they got to deal with a discontented, angry person. But if that's where you are, or if you're in relationship with somebody who's there, they are so because they don't have the vertical thing down. They don't have the relationship with God right. How does that happen? By the grace of God, the same way it happened with you. So you don't get angry about it. You don't try to take matters into your own hands and grab them by the collar and force it into them because you can't. You seek to cooperate with God. So second, page 31, she must pray for spiritual discernment to determine if her husband is faint-hearted, weak, or idle. Now, the assumption in this, remember going back a few weeks ago, is that these are two Christians. you got one who's obviously more mature than the other. And so here it is, faint-hearted, weak, or idle. And you see the reference there, 1 Thessalonians? So I'm going to turn there and I'm going to read to you 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Because it is, uses those, um, those phrases. It's a different translation, but I'll read for you what the NIV says. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 We urge you, brothers, warn those who are idols, idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So it says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So what we've got here are three categories of people. You've got the faint-hearted, that would be the timid. You've got the, you've got the weak, and then you've got the idle. And for each of those, notice, you've got different things that you do. If the person is faint-hearted, if they're timid, it tells us you encourage them. If they're weak, it tells you to help them. If they're idle, it tells you to warn them. So that's what you have in 1, 2, and 3. If discouraged, if the person that you're in this relationship with is discouraged, then you seek to encourage. So this person is, they were going along well, but then they got a curveball in life that throw, has thrown them for a loop, and they're discouraged. They're trying to, if it's the husband, let's say, he's trying to provide for his family. He's been working hard at work. He's been trying to get this promotion and he doesn't get the promotion. He doesn't get the raise that he was hoping to have for his family. He's discouraged. And so you want to encourage that. You want to encourage that person. Now, how do you encourage that person? You can only encourage with what you have. 
That's why you've got to do vertical before you do horizontal. Encouragement from a biblical perspective is not putting your arm around somebody and saying, hey, it'll be okay. You'll get that next promotion. I mean, don't try to be a prophet, okay? And prophesy what's going to happen for this person. It's not, hey, it's going to be okay. It's God's got this. Where are you going first? First thing out of your mouth should be God. Not, hey, you're all that. You're better than that other guy who got the promotion. You're going to get the next promotion. That should not be your first way. That may all be true. But the way you encourage the person from a Christian standpoint is you point them to God. God has got this. But how are you going to be able to tell them God's got this if you don't live that way? You can only give what you have yourself. If they're weak, look for ways to help him battle his natural tendency of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. And this also could be a physical weakness as well. We just, the word is we, we help. And then if they're idle, and the reason it says idle is because in the Thessalonian church, 1 Thessalonians written to the church in Thessalonica, two letters, first and second, And in both of those letters, you had a problem. One of the problems was some people in that church were not pulling their own weight. They were not working for a living. And so Paul had to say to them, all of you need to pull your own weight. In fact, in the chapter before this, in chapter 4, he says that very thing. You should not be idle. You should work with your own hands. You should pull your own weight. By the time he writes the second letter, it's even more severe because apparently some of these people didn't get it together. And so he says, now I told you that everybody needs to work with their own hands. Everybody needs to pull their own weight. And now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6, all the way down to verse 11, he says, if a person does not do that, you're to not associate with that person. They're sinning. So here you've got a discouraged person in one category. You've got a weak person, whether spiritually or physically. But then this third category is a person who is now just sinning. And what do you do? You have to, in humility, you have to admonish. You warn them, according to the NIV. And so you tell them, hey, listen, you keep going down this road. You keep doing this. And this is going to be costly to you. It's going to be costly to others. This is what God says. You're violating what God says. You're warning them. You're admonishing them. Repent of this. So you identify what category are they in. Remember, Christ's main admonishment to his disciples was calling out their unbelief. His biggest issue is unbelief, which prevents him from moving forward in God's call on his life. The wife must look to steward her submission to help him overcome his unbelief. If he is in sin and not willing to repent, she should follow the example of Matthew 18. That's the warn and admonish piece. Outside counsel can sometimes help if he's willing to listen. Continually seek prayer and counsel from others to determine how to bring God's glory, bring God's glory and produce the fruit of the Spirit. Paul Tripp says this, I'm never going to have paradise in my marriage. Paradise is to come. I'm never married to a perfect person. That person will never be my Messiah. The person I'm married to has no capacity whatsoever to change my heart. That person I am married to has no capacity whatsoever to bring satisfaction and contentment to my heart. They have no ability whatsoever to deliver me from my sin. They just have no ability to do any of that. 
but you know who has all ability to do all of that is our Lord. So it comes down to, friends, after all of these weeks and our search for identity is, am I going to find my identity in God or in someone or something else? Deal with the vertical, then you'll be able to deal with the horizontal, but not until. All right, I'm going to pray and I'm going to leave. I'm not going to talk to any of you. I'm going to vacate the premises, okay? And then, guys, if some of you can stick around to help with the tables and chairs, that would be a great thing, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the blessings of this Lord's Day, the opportunity to be instructed from your word, to fellowship with one another, to indeed encourage one another and be encouraged. Lord, help us to take what we have learned and apply that now in our daily lives this week. Lord, we do not want to be hearers only, but we want to be doers of your word. So help us to do that this week. Grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.